0: Hello out there. I'm Harris Shilakovsky. I'm a musician. I hear things. We're taught as musicians that music is organized sound. Now, although I'm not a scientist, I'm a big fan of science and of great scientists. So when I look at the universe, I'm seeking an underlying order of the cosmological things, as others have done before me. I attempt to organize the dreams and theories and discoveries of stargazers and dreamers, astrophysicists, astronomers, astrobiologists, and other scientists, which they have magnanimously shared with us. And then I create pieces of music that are inspired by those cosmological things. The Opus Magnanimus podcast includes rough drafts of music inspired by cosmologically exciting discoveries from our present time, such as the exciting new pictures we see from the super telescopes that enable us to travel back through time almost to the beginning of the universe. The musical pieces will also go back through human history to compare the experiences, experiments, and inventions of scientifically-minded people throughout history. Scientists also experience life and culture, art and music, so I hope we will see what they saw and hear what they heard. In each bi-weekly episode, you hear new music inspired by the latest discoveries and innovations in cosmology and astrology. Many of these pieces of music will be included in the final version of Opus Magnanimus. By listening to the episodes of the Opus Magnanimus podcasts, you are seeing, hearing, and experiencing firsthand the creation of a grand musical composition. The music playing at the beginning of today's episode is the piece I wrote to represent the mythical Sagittarius. My plan is to continue introducing the rest of the constellations of the Zodiac, one in each of the next seven episodes of Opus Magnanimus. Since the constellations in the Zodiac are more visible in certain months, I'll introduce certain constellations in the month when you can look up in the night sky and see it. This link will help you figure out which constellations are visible in each month. It's www.constellation-guide.com forward slash constellations-by-month forward slash. I will, of course, list that link for you, underneath wherever you are finding your podcast to listen to. So tonight, we meet Sagittarius. Sagittarius, according to the mythological stories, is the final fire sign of the zodiac. And the traits of Sagittarius are a blend of... Passion and curiosity, intensity and adaptability. the The character or the uh, being that is represented in the zodiacal constellation is that of an archer, uh, somebody with a bow and arrow. In other words, um, that is a half man, half horse. the word is a centaur, so Sagittarius uses the bow and arrow to explore across vast terrains and Sagittarius seeks answers in places and spaces that other people wouldn't dare to go. Sagittarius is on a quest for knowledge of no limit. Um, and the Sagittarius is a changeable sign. That is to say, it's, uh, it's associated with adapt- adaptability and flexibility. Um, so the, the archer has a, a deep desire to, for change. Um, they like to explore, and they like to be free to roam. Uh, They're always on the move. Um, And they're very brutally honest, which can lead to some hurt feelings sometimes, but Sagittarius doesn't take things too seriously. So it's hard to stay mad at uh, Sagittarius Um, people, people who supposedly have these qualities. Sagittarius is fascinated with lots of different things, lots of different passions and interests. Now, moving on to our tr- our true history, um, we're going to look at the period starting in 400, in the Common Era, uh, so B.C., uh, excuse me, not B.C., A.D. would be... It's either called C.E. or A.D., right? A common era or after uh, Anno Domini or after death or whatever, however you want to identify it. In any case, it's going to go from there and up to... This period of time goes up to about the 12th century of the common era. Um... We're going to visit again, as we did before, with um, Indian astronomers. Um, There's a great tradition of looking at the stars and thinking and theorizing about what it all means of India, and also al-Sijzi of Iran, both proposed that the earth rotates around its axis. First empirical evidence for earth's rotation was by Nasir al-Din al-Tusi. This was really the beginning of what I would call the study, call it theoretical thinking about the stars. And the period is known as the Siddhantic Era. This was the time of a new branch of astronomy which diverged, it moved away from the Vedas, uh, which was the sort of proto-theorizing. It's called Siddantic Era, and there were a series of books called the Siddhanat, or in English, called the Solutions. Now, these charted out the solar year and solstices, equinoxes, lunar periods, solar and lunar eclipses, and planetary movements were all sort of written out. They were all charted. And there were three great Indian astronomers. Um, And by the first century uh, in the Common Era, the Indian astronomers were already s- proposing, they were already saying that stars were exactly like the sun, but f- farther away. Um, this is at the same time that the Greeks were still using uh, crystal spheres to explain the cosmos. The Indian astronomers understood that the Earth was spherical, And they attempted to even calculate the circumference of our own planet. Uh, A lot of their thoughts, uh, as had been the case for a long time, were revealed in religious verses. So there's always some murkiness to the interpretation of what these things meant. But... um, Yajnavalkya, in the third millennium, uh, in India, believed in a heliocentric universe. Um, so there was, you know, some much more developed uh, ideas going on during this satantic uh, era. Um, th- there's not much uh, sort of written down, unfortunately. So, you know, we have to surmise a lot of this stuff, as we said, from the religious writings. Um, so, uh, Arabhata um, said that the earth actually rotated, um, which was different than the idea that other people previously had, had that the skies were rotating. So, he said, no, the earth is what's rotating. Um, And um, he also had some mathematical models that forecasted the eclipses that found their way into Europe eventually and influenced um, thinking during the Renaissance period. Um, The Arab Hatia was his book. Um, And in the 13th century, that got translated into Latin, which, of course, means more people in the... Western world, you might call it, uh, Europeans uh, started uh, reading the same things. Um, Included in this were uh, the ability to measure the volume of a sphere, the area of a triangle, and how to calculate a square root and a cube root. This is math as we know it. Then there was Varahamihira, he lived in the sixth century. And Varahamihira uh, proposed that the force that held the objects onto the earth, which of course we think of gravity, also held all of the stars, the celestial bodies in place in the sky. This was um, moving beyond Anaximander's idea of equilibrium. And uh, as we say, it was the beginning of a, uh, a gravitational theory before Newton ever proposed it. Sir Isaac Newton, who's actually credited with sort of figuring out gravity, Varah uh, said there has to be an attractive force uh, that keep things... Stationary, you know, sort of near each other, which of course is our idea of gravity. Then there was uh, Brahmagupta. Uh, Brahmagupta um, was also a sedantic astronomer. Um, He understood that the Earth was spherical, it is round and attempted to calculate the circumference of the planet. In the seventh century, so around the year 700, uh, Brahmagupta figured out a a figure of about 36,000 kilometers for the circumference of the Earth, which we, in present day, uh, know that that's pretty close to the actual measurement. after uh, Sudantic, uh astronomy, uh, another period uh, rose uh, as Islam uh, became more influential in India and more Greek uh, uh, writings <coughs> that were translated into Arabic um, moved into India. And that's called the Zij era. So... Um, so there was, and there was a lot of the numbering system, a lot of contributions by the mathematicians from India. and their their influence, you know didn't end there. They had a great deal of influence on our developing understanding of cosmological things encourage you to look at some of the links that are below the podcast uh, explorable.com forward slash Indian dash astronomy is a, a really good place to start um, so now we've looked at a little historical stuff now let's jump to the present or to our generation at least to the battle of the space telescopes part one hubble versus the next generation space telescope versus gaia oh battle between three different space based telescopes now comparing hubble and the next generation the ngst uh and gaia space telescopes images, and research findings. I did a little looking at this subject in preparation for this podcast today, and I guess I didn't really remember my space history very well because it seems that Hubble and Gaia aren't fighting for supremacy. They're actually collaborating. I had just viewed a wonderful PBS Nova program, a show called Pluto and Beyond. Um, the flyby of the New Horizons project uh, mission passed this object known as Ultima Thule, which is now known as Arakoth or Arakot. Uh, w- They actually had to change the name Ultima Thule when they found out that, uh, well, it had some perhaps distasteful uh, connotations. Anyway, Arakot is the word meaning sky in the language of the Powhatan people, a Native American tribe uh, that is indigenous to the Chesapeake Bay region, Uh, you know, Maryland, Virginia. In fact, they uh, owned the whole area before the white settlers came and uh, took it over. As a conscientious musician and composer, I am not going to steal or use Powhatan tribal music without their permission so in fact I am not going to represent their music herein but instead I'm going to just simply refer you to a gr- couple of great links to uh, YouTube videos and other information and urge you to study up on their traditions that are still very much alive this, to this day also encourage you to look at isahubble.org um, I'll again list the link to that um, there's a great uh, archive of press releases that are right up to date in 2022 um, describing the work of the Hubble telescope uh, spiraling stars providing a window into the early universe and uh, Hubble determining the mass of an isolated black hole that roams our own Milky Way. Uh, Hubble helping to explain why Uranus and Neptune are different colors. Uh, and then a whole collection of supernova host galaxies um, and uh, a lot of other f- fantastic findings of uh, Hubble found the most distant star ever seen, uh, they announced on March 30th of 2022. So, some great uh, advanced um, technology on the Hubble. The Hubble and Gaia were both used... Information from both telescopes were used to help uh, identify, again, it used to be called Ultima Thule, but it's now known as Arakoth. Uh, and they worked together to actually pinpoint uh, information that enabled scientists to um, identify, uh, again, uh Uh, many things, actually. Um, So it's not really a battle between space telescopes. Um, And in fact, I'm not going to write music for a battle of the telescopes because um, there isn't any. (laughs) It would just be a fake news cartoon. But I would like to introduce you to... uh, an incredible uh, link to information that Gaia has helped to reveal or discover both the past and future of our own sun or our star. Uh, So, here we go. Our sun's past and future. I'm just going to open up this incredible link. Um, we wish that we could see into the future. Um, now, astronomers, because basically do that uh, regarding the sun. What is the sun's future? Um, by looking at stars that are similar, that have the same mass, the same composition, the same gases, the same uh, molecules, atoms, uh, we can see how our Sun is going to evolve in the future. So this is an incredible ability that's being developed. And the Gaia uh, third major data release, uh, aka DR3, which came out June 13th. We mentioned it in an earlier episode. Um, This database of hundreds of millions of stars, information, how hot they are, how big, and the mass of each one, um, and so they can, you know, turn this information into a usable information about these stars. Um, so they, uh astronomers, um, uh, the earlier in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, uh, at Harvard. Uh, College Observatory in Massachusetts um, classified the spectral lines uh, uh, of the um, Annie Jump Cannon was, uh, devised this sequence of spectral classification uh, in which she ordered all the stars depending on the strength of these spectral lines and um, And they figured out that this um, correlates with the temperature of the stars. Um, Antonia Mori classified the stars uh, based on the width of some of these spectral lines. And then they discovered that this also relates to the luminosity and the age of a star. So you're getting a lot of different information from certain measurements. Now, I'm not going to read you the entire article. Again, I want to direct you towards this uh, fabulous link uh, at ISA. Again, I'll list it below this um, podcast. Um, So anyway, um, one of the things that they mention is, you know, of course, again, going back to like why... Do we want to understand our sun? Why do we want to understand other stars? Uh, It helps us to understand our own sun and, of course, studying our own sun enables us to understand things about stars that are much farther away as well because there will be many similarities. Um, So we have to uh, one of the things they pointed out in this article in the European Space Agency's uh, publication is that The sun is really hard to study because it's so much brighter, because it's so much closer to us. So, um, but if we look at other stars, we can, the fact that this is too bright to look at, we can use stars that are farther away, you know, that don't, like, burn out our telescopes or whatever. Um, And they use, uh, Gaia uses the findings uh, to figure out um, which stars are similar to our own star. Um, in any case, um, the uh, this really cool article um, about how Gaia is looking at the age of our own sun. So our sun is almost five, yeah, four and a half. A little more than four and a half billion years old. Seems very old. It's in its middle age. Um, And what it's doing right now is fusing hydrogen into helium. Now, that sounds kind of simple on the surface of that comet. But it's actually quite an interesting process and this is how stars work, is they, they change one element into another. Um, it will not always be so stable, uh, our sun. It, as hydrogen runs out in its core, there will be changes in the fusion process. At that point, it swells into a red giant star, which lowers its surface temperature. And it and it swells, um, and it, it it it's different depending on th- which star you're talking about, how much mass your star has, how what its chemical composition is, and that's where this database that that uh, that Gaia you know the Gaia mission is creating uh, comes into uh, to being helpful. Um, so anyway. Uh, Gaia has revealed this, you know, the past and future of our sun by showing us what stage of its development it's at. So, as we said, hydrogen is fusing together with helium. And that releases a huge amount of energy. Well, that's called fusion. Now, if you know about nuclear fusion, you know that that's. A way of that we haven't actually completely figured out. It happens in the sun, but we can't quite figure out how to do it in a sustainable way on our planet. Uh, uh, some people maybe think that we shouldn't. <laughs> um, but in any case, it brings me to the subject of nuclear fusion in the sun. So there are several steps in what they call proton-proton fusion in the sun. Um, Several simple quote-unquote steps. Um, So, two, and oh, by the way, for each little element um, I'm gonna play music that represents each little tiny element. Like, we're gonna talk about protons and I'm gonna play you the music that I wrote. That represents protons. Protons, so, okay, to, to do this thing of creating proton proton fusion in the sun, uh, we're gonna look at how that works. Two protons, oh, and by the way, what is a proton? Oh, so we gotta go back. And <laughs> we gotta understand protons are composed of two up quarks. Of charge plus 23e and one down quark of charge 13e. So, this is the music for an up quark that I wrote. Now, two of these up quarks combine with one down quark of charge at 13e. Uh so here's the down quark <laughs> down quark are what comprise a proton. Uh, FYI, the rest masses of the quarks contribute only 1% of a proton's mass. So, these protons within the sun fuse together Two of the protons fuse together. Most of the time the pair, the two protons, breaks apart again, but sometimes one of the protons transforms into a neutron. the transformation into a neutron, a positron. Hmm. What's a positron? A positron, or an anti-electron, is the antiparticle or the antimatter counterpart of the electron. It has an electric charge of plus 1e. A spin of one half, which is the same as the electron, and the same mass as an electron. Here's the positron. Remember that the positron is the antimatter counterpart of the electron. So it's like the backwards electron. And a positron collides with an electron here's the electron So as I was saying, when a positron collides with an electron, annihilation occurs, and neutrino are formed. It's a combination of a positron and an electron. So the combination of the proton-neutron pair known as the neutrino that forms is sometimes known as deuterium. Now the third proton now, there's a third proton now that's going to collide with the deuterium that we've just formed. This collision of the third proton colliding with the deuterium results in the formation of a helium-3 nucleus and a gamma ray. Here comes the helium-3 nucleus. And then the gamma-ray. The gamma-ray, if you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, has the shortest wavelength. And it is also the highest frequency in waves per second and the most incredibly intense energy of one photon or in measured in electron volts. The sounds I've created to represent this are very fast vibrations to represent the speed and intensity and microcosmic size of these waves. They're moving incredibly fast, and they're incredibly tiny. They're very, very short waves. So, of course, we can't represent that exactly with sound, since sound, the human ear hears things that don't move that fast. The sound waves... But we can give ourselves an idea of what it might feel like. rays work their way out from the core of the sun and are released as sunlight. You can read about this in the uh, URL uh, or the link energyeducation.ca forward slash encyclopedia forward slash sunlight. The last step... In this fusion process is that two helium-3 nuclei collide, creating a helium-4 nucleus plus two extra neutron, excuse me, protons that escape as two hydrogen. Technically, this is a beryllium-6 nuclei will form first, but these are typically unstable and so. The beryllium 6 disintegrates into the helium 4 nucleus. Result? Sunlight. Please check out the links on gamma ray astronomy, uh, definitions of gamma ray, what that is, and the article on ionizing radiation, and of course, the article that defines what ionization actually is. And please do support this podcast by going to the link on our website where you can become a subscriber at the level that's comfortable for you and you'll get all kinds of wonderful benefits. Not the least of which is that you are helping us make this a better and better podcast. In the next episode of Opus Magnanimus, I'll be going back to 700 in the Common Era, to the age of Puranic Hindu cosmology, and beginning to learn about astronomy, in the medieval period in the Islamic world. Gravitational waves will move us and inspire some heavy music as we'll be looking at the work of LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. We'll be inspired by the constellation Aquarius, which is visible in October, and... Observe a number of deep sky objects that are located in these constellations, including the Great Pegasus Cluster, the Spiral Galaxy NGC 7331, Stevens Quintet, the Helix Nebula, the Saturn Nebula, and the Atoms for Peace Galaxy. See you in two weeks.